Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. If you'd like to see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com, subscribe on iTunes, or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the programme. In the Amber Spyglass, the third part of his dark materials, Mary Malone, an ex-nun, says, I stopped believing that there was a power of good and a power of evil that were outside us. And I came to believe that good and evil are names for what people do, not for what they are. Mary's argument is made as she's making sense of a world in which the church has been revealed as an authoritarian organisation that is not interested in a higher truth. Controversial when it was first published, the books ask us how we can build heaven on earth and what sacrifices that might involve. I'm Alex Hoseason and joining me today... I'm Matthew Campbell. I'm Charlotte Botfield. Okay, so we loaded this book on Charlotte uh, this trilogy uh, this trilogy on Charlotte uh, the increasingly lengthy trilogy that goes through um, as our kind of uh, local practicing Christian (laughs) Um, but I mean it was the first time I've read them in a long time Um, I mean what what did we think I did read the first one as a child and I really really enjoyed the first one because it's just a young person's adventure story. That's how I read it. Um, I think I the Christianity thing just went straight over my head as a child. When I started on the second book, I found that very difficult because it changes quite suddenly between this sort of great adventure story to a much wider storyline and sort of world building, really. Yeah, I think I had much the same initial issue with the, the first one was like, oh, got bears and this spyglass, not spyglass, this compass, and it's got witches and adventures and gunfights, and then you get to the second one, and your protagonist has vanished. Um, it's suddenly about a whole different set of themes whatsoever, and, and suddenly God and everything is is getting involved. Yeah. And I think that certainly reading it this time, I was old enough to actually think about the moral dimension rather than when I was a kid. It was a backdrop to this adventure story about this cool knife and, and this awesome bear. And yeah, I think I, again, I mean, maybe we all read it around the same age. I don't know, a few years after it came out. But I think, especially the third one, which gets really deep, really quick on the kind of religious themes. I mean, actually, I was surprised when I read it how openly it stated. Because I must have been pretty stupid when I was young not to pick up on it. Because uh, it does talk about it fairly openly. But I think maybe I was just skipping to the exciting bits, right? I was okay. flicking, I was flicking through those bits, you know, because I didn't know about the fall, and well, I mean, I knew about it in a kind of vague sense. I, mean, I wasn't least, brought up reading the Inferno, you know. At least in the first one. So if, if you're on board of parallel universes, uh, and basically we all are, in the first one, certainly, okay, the church is there, and moral dimensions are there, but I, I can understand the world in which the church is also somehow a scientific research body. It felt very Isaac Newton. Mm-hmm. And that that was fine. So actually, I don't think that religiosity is as explicit as one might expect in the first one. I think in the first one, mm. it seemed almost... I could almost see it because the authoritarian structure of the church is not terribly dissimilar in some ways as to the way the Catholic Church has behaved in the past. So it, it's not the same, obviously, but it was almost familiar in some ways, whereas the later ones were not... I mean, in in a sense, the first one it has religion in it 
in, in a way that I might recognize, right? You go to churches, the big places, there's some statues and stuff. You walk through them, you know, and everything else, right? I mean, that's a different question to the nature of the church, which is something that it gets into. Mm-hmm. I think some of it was still kind of metaphorical enough. You know, when they talk about, you know, the authority being this kind of really, you know, all angels being this figure kind of lighter than air and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's not anything that I would have necessarily had much of a comparison for, apart from, like, ring rates, right? I mean, I was, I, was, I was brought up, like, religious, but not in any way which related to this kind of aspect of it, right? In, in terms of kind of the, the kind of mythical stories around the nature of angels and purgatory and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that just wasn't a part of my church-going life. I think the point at which I first became aware that this is saying something about religion is in... I forget where Father Gomez first appears. He might be early in the third book. Oh, the Inquisitor guy. Who has preemptive absolution. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the first time I became aware that that there's actually a dig going on here rather than this being a backdrop. Mm -hmm. Uh, But certainly I go through an awful lot of it without necessarily thinking it's trying to persuade me of a particular religious point. Much like I did with Narnia. Um, Narnia is a rollicking adventure story. Yeah. I found when I first read Narnia more explicit, but that might be partly because of my religious upbringing, um, with the whole bit where they tie Aslan to the, the stone. But I can see for many people that Narnia is, is just a great adventure story, and then 20 years later you come across it, and actually it's, it's the story of Christ. I mean, is this a fundamentally British position? Because certainly when the film adaptations were made, these became this became a battleground in American religion. Mm-hmm. That Narnia was the good books and the good films, and that Philip Pullman's were the bad books and the bad films. Well, I think... I mean, I, th- I think in some sense it's more subtle than that, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot going on in the book, and even within that kind of... You know, the people criticising it were a very specific group. Right, you know, biblical literalists or whatever you want to call them. But, I mean, you know, you had people like Rowan Williams coming out and saying, well, people should read this because it's not about, oh, you know, there, the argument that there wasn't a real Christ and a real cross, and by the way, there's way too many splinters of the real cross around and all that kind of stuff. It's not about those there's kind of... nails of the true cross to shoot every horse and sack. Yeah. Right, you know, it's, it, it's not about those kind of, inter- you know, endless kind of arguments over, you know, which bits in the Bible are real or not. It's about the structure of authority. I actually found it really useful for this reason, in that I think that if you are going to practice Christianity or any religion or anything, you need to read a lot rather than just listen to what other people have told you. And when you're reading a lot, you need to read both sides of the argument. And actually, it's usually more than two sides of any argument. So going out and saying, don't read this book because it's you know, not pro-Christianity is a good reason as a Christian to read this book because it can suggest to you actually, it can improve your own faith, but it can also improve the way that you, you see Christianity and how you understand it and how you can see how the structure of the church or churches doesn't, sometimes doesn't work particularly well. Hmm. That, that, that's a very modern and very liberal view of Christianity. Though, I think so. Yeah, yeah but I'm, I'm a modern and liberal Christian, um, which is uh, it's a problem in Christianity, really, because Christianity is a very, very large religion with a lot of very different denominations. And actually saying, oh, so-and-so is a Christian doesn't necessarily tell you a lot about that person. Um, I mean, there's some Christians 
who call themselves Christians would probably be a better way to put that, who don't believe in the Trinity, whereas that's meant to be like a fundamental aspect of Christianity. So saying someone is a Christian doesn't actually tell you that much about their belief system. Is that a flaw with the trilogy then, in that there is the church yes. as a body? And, I found that. And we have to imagine that in all these parallel worlds, there are different versions of the church. Certainly the character Will comes from our world, so presumably he's got our versions of Christianity. But in Lyra's world, which is the one we're most familiar with, there is just the church. And that's about it, as far as we are led to believe. And well, I think there's a bit of a distinction to be made here. I mean, I, I think, for instance, I mean, you, you say that this is a very kind of modern idea of what Christianity is, right? The kind of thing that you're talking about, Charlotte. I mean, it becomes possible at a certain point, right? The, the fact that you say, well, you know, people have, in some senses, a responsibility to go and read other religious texts, to go and read, you know, other stuff. Right, is something that only happens once we get the printing press, right? Which incidentally is precisely around the time that we start getting reformed Christianity, mm-hmm. kind of more civically focused versions of Christianity. And I think, you know, I, I mean, the funny thing is, in the in the debate between him and, and him and Rowan Williams earlier, one of the things Rowan Williams pointed out is there's no Jesus. Right in yeah. in the Amber Spyglass. Well, there's no God. God isn't God. But but there's you know there's no reasonable allegory for Jesus. Yeah. Right? And so I mean this was before Pullman released or wrote uh, finished the the Good Man Jesus and the Scandal Christ, right? Which as I remember it, and I I don't think I've even read it, but as I remember from the blurb, is basically about what would happen if you had a perfectly good man who wasn't divine, right? And a divine man who was a prad. And, you know, that kind of argument, right? You know, the, the kind of argument which says, well, if there are perfectly good people on an island that never had missionaries arriving, do they go to heaven? Mm. Right. There's this, this an argument that's been going on for a very long time. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and, and this is quite an interesting thing, because then, in some ways, you do get a version of Christianity that is maybe not according to the church, the same as Reformed Christians weren't for centuries, right? You know, but you have people like Mary Malone taking this kind of line that you see in... He's a scientist nun with the I Ching. Well, yeah, but, you, but you, you get people taking this line which, you know, Voltaire takes, right? Which is, he famously finishes his book Candide with the line, we must tend our garden. Right? You just build what you have, right? And you don't hold out for divine, um, divine intervention or, you know, whatever, right? You know, so whether... It, I, I think one of the problems, though, that... That a lot of debates around Christianity seems to run into is a lot of people tend towards the idea that okay maybe there isn't a God that's interventionist right or you know we can count on for intervention in that way but of course the problem is the whole story of Jesus is an entirely interventionist story right and you have to account for that so it's kind of a a tricksy path to run down in that sense I went on a bit about that I get quite excited about that so. <laughs> Um, I mean, the other thing is, I, I got this because I skimmed the first two, and I, I, I read the third one in a little bit more depth, is the whole, is the kind of free will question, right? Because it, I think I made the same mistake as I did in Babylon 5, because when you just read the third one, you get a whole lot of prophecy. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of prophecy in the first one with hindsight. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, I mean, I... I I didn't know that. I mean, actually, the book doesn't speculate on whether there is a god or not. It says that the authority is not god, mm-hmm. yeah. but it doesn't actually. Well, does actually. There's a character state. at one point. I think it might be Bartholomew, 
Somebody okay. says that, well, there may have been a creator, and there may not have been, but that question is irrelevant to this war. Mm. Um, and so he sort of sidesteps that one, and I think that's a completely decent sidestep if we're deciding that this isn't actually an anti-religious message, this is an anti-authority message. Mm. That Balthalamos is like, well, yeah, okay, there, there could have been a creator, maybe there's a god, but what we're fighting is this unfair authority over the morals of other people's lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the other question that comes from that then is what the dust is, right? I mean, that kind of... I hear that, that he's actually releasing a new book about this. Well, um, I have a free will, will question about the Mulefa, the, the wheeled animals, in the... That's such a good... Yeah. It's, such a, it's, it's great, great to see yeah. that they're a wonderful idea... Um, about how to make wheels work on an animal. I lo- I'm a big fan of, like, that kind of evolutionary thing. So, like, the fact, okay, we've got sea pods and they need the animals, the animals need the sea pods, and then they need the roads. But if the reproduction of the sea pods requires dust, um, that would presumably remove certain ideas of free will, because the Maleva and their pod trees are reliant on a theological balance caused by dust. And actually, they don't have the free will to do what they want because they require dust to be flowing around their world in a particular way. But the dust stays, right? I mean, they don't... It stabilises. Yeah. So what's the problem? It's got to... So the way, by no action of their own, their trees are dying. Yeah. Because dust isn't flowing properly. Right. So they don't really have free will. In the same way that perhaps people who live in low-lying islands don't have free will because they can't stop the oceans from rising because it's, say, China and America who are producing carbon. That's true, I suppose, yeah. I mean, it, it, it kind of removes it from the free will level of yeah. the question, right? You know, it just says, well, is the, I mean, if the question of free will is, am I perfectly suited to my environment, then as someone that doesn't particularly like stairs... <laughs> Right, I mean, the stairs are in position on my free will. Someone's office is on the top floor. You know, I, 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 I think that, I mean, there's a couple of different ways you can look at this, right? I mean, given that the angels are, seem to be basically dust that becomes conscious of itself, right? Um, I mean, that's a kind of, you know, some of these kind of grand scale kind of, you know, you see this kind of thing in Hegel and philosophy, right? The universe becoming conscious of itself and... You know, humans are the way that that happens, and the authority was just the first one that happened to mm-hmm. kind of cohere into into something. I mean, it, that that seemed to him to me that there was some kind of principle by which the universe was tied together in this case, right? Um, now, I mean, that's very much up for debate <laughs> in our world, right? Whether you know there is a balance in nature is, is in some cases, a damaging idea, I think. Well, certainly the parallel to our world is that humans happen to be the first animal to really get a grip on consciousness and technology, and therefore we've declared ourselves superior to all the other animals, mm-hmm. and that Earth is ours to do as we will, and other animals just have to do whatever we do to the planet. Yeah. And, and that's a very controversial position, but a lot of, even passively, human societies work upon that principle, and that's what the authority does in the dark material. Yeah, I think one of the other, one of the things I do like though is the is, is the animal characters, yeah. Um, yeah. because they even though okay, like armored bears are awesome, right? Let's let's just get that. Well, some of them are rubbish. Yeah. That's that's really cool. That. Yeah. They're made more awesome by the fact that only some of them are awesome. <laughs> um, but you know, even though that just seems like lazy kind of anthropomorphism, right? You're just kind of attributing human characteristics to animals. 
Um, with the Galavespians and the Dragonflies, um, and even to some extent the Witches, you're starting to see beings which exist on different timescales. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's a great bit, isn't there, where there's well, they, they talk about how they feel in relation to each other. So the Galavespians... Let's go with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they say they talk about how Lyra and Will's lives seem really long to them and stretch out into the future. Will, uh, Lyra says something similar, I think, at some point about the witches, or mm. one of the human characters about the witches. And then in this, the second book, uh, one of the witches starts ordering around the angels, and the angels do what she says, but they think that she's funny because to them she's so young. And it's kind of interesting how all of them think of each other as older or younger, and actually there's such a great time between them. And, but even the smaller ones, even the Galvespians, um, are considered actually really quite clever, even though they only live for a very short amount of time. I think that so part of the way they manage that is that basically every weird group has their own technological marvel. Mm-hmm. So no one can work metal like the bears, and there's the low-stone resonator, which is mm-hmm. quantum entangled radio, which is this amazing piece of technology. Yeah. And then they're, they're basically they're a cavalry culture. They have chevaliers, and they stab people with close combat weapons, yeah. and yet somehow they have a quantum entangled interstellar radio. But I think this is at its strongest in the first book because we see most of the bears there, and that's probably the, this, the book where we see most of a non-human civilization. Yeah. And actually, the more we and Lyra learn about the bears the less human they seem. So when you first meet Irek, he's a bear who works metal and talks. And yet by the end, the way they fundamentally view the world, and the fact that you can't trick a bear and how they live is just so different that actually I, I don't think they're very human at all. They just happen to be able to speak English. And doesn't he say something about how he doesn't have a ghost either, so he would never go to the land of the dead? Well, I was thinking that his armour is his demon, which yeah, I quite liked as I quite an idea. Like an idea. Uh, because that's how the bears manifest their consciousness. But then Will also says something about how they're already turning into human because they're using armour. Whereas if they didn't have the armour, they would be fully bare. That's their... Yeah. Well, of course, the bears first work their armour around 30,000 years ago when they become conscious, when mm-hmm. they become able to work and make things more than an animal. So in a way, yeah, the, the armour is what makes them insult. Yeah. And that means... Well, if, if the ability to work... Cause Mary states explicitly, look, that when I work this piece of wood, dust will stick around it. Hmm. And the bears certainly do that. And so if the armour is what ensouls the bears, then yeah, the armour is his demon. I mean, let's talk about the demons then. You were saying earlier, Matt, that... I mean, Easy storytelling conceit. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it means that the books are a lot shorter than they might otherwise be, right? Well, you can do, you can do efficient character development. So if someone's got a dog, that's fine. If someone's got a snake, that's okay. But then you have the, the, the opposite to this, right? When but there's the monk who's got a bat, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> well, what, what about him is bat-like? You have this issue where when they're hit puberty, their, their form stops moving because it, it shows you what sort of person they are. But I'm certainly not the same person I was when I was, you know, 12, 13. And I don't think mm. that many people actually are the same person. Yeah, I think that was kind of... I mean, the weird thing is actually precisely... The, the quote we used at the beginning, right? Evil is what people are good and evil are what people do, not what, what they are. are. Yeah. And so, so the demon seems to contradict that. Yeah. A little bit strange in terms of There's also the fundamental so um if if so if you met someone who had an owl demon, we'd all look at that and go, well, this person is wise or scholastic. Mm-hmm. That's true in Western folklore. 
the owl is not necessarily wise or scholastic in all other folklores. In some Native American folklores, the owl is a symbol of death or murder. Mm-hmm. So, does this mean there's a metaphysical set of rules that, that rats are cunning and that snakes are evil? And Is this true in all universes? <laughs> one of the things I did wonder, and one of the things that I thought might work in the book, it doesn't happen in the book, but one of the things I might thought might happen in the book is that the demons were reflecting the society in which they live to some extent, right? So So in the absence of the authority, we might go back to a stage in which um, people's demons start changing again, right? Because we don't have this principle anymore of, like, original sin, right? Of of kind of fixed sin. But that doesn't happen. So it, it is quite a strange... I mean, the demons are a really cool thing. Yeah. I love the idea that, you know, Lord Asriel has this part of his personality, which is just this... Is it a lynx or a leopard? A leopard. It's no leopard. It's no leopard. leopard. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's snow leopard just following him around. And that, that's, it's, a, it's a beautiful conceit. I love the idea that you could just talk to your inner consciousness. And they can talk to each other, yeah, and this yeah. removes language barriers between yeah. humans. But I think my favourite bit about the demons, though, is at the very end of the last book, where Will and Lyra have fallen in love and Pan we'll call him because yeah, the camera Pan, can't say Pan and uh, K- Kira is it? yeah something like Will's, that Will's demon They Lyra touches Will's demon and Will touches Lyra's demon and the, the quote is um, they wonder where they're the first lovers ever to experience this wonderful thing or I paraphrase yeah. and it, I think that's just such a lovely mm-hmm. idea that actually you know this is the way that you show each other you love each other. I think I think one of the most beautiful parts of the book, and I mean, when I read it as a kid, like it made me cry. The ending, like, I, I, I think because it was, it gets to this idea that things like first love and everything else are, and one of the things that's quite consistent about the book is people make the worlds that they live in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when people fall in love for the same for the first time, it's always going to be the first time. Do you know what I mean? In, in, in that sense. Um, and so I thought that that was quite quite clever. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, the other thing the demon is, though, right, is, is um, I mean, Socrates argued that his conscience was an inner voice that he called his demon, right, that would, wouldn't tell him what to do, but would forbid him from doing certain things. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he couldn't act against his conscience, right? I mean, this kind of plays out in the sense that they can't move away from their demons. Well, this isn't, I mean, this idea isn't Pinocchio, right? Is yeah, it? of course. Yeah. Um, you were also mentioning that you almost felt like all the people with dog demons were almost like this designated slave cast. Yeah, I, but I think, I mean, I don't know whether that's kind of a, if I was going to be strictly logical about it, a kind of subset of the argument that people are in some way fixed. But I mean, it is, it, because... You can imagine that being a thing, though. Uh, but the other thing is, I mean, that's precisely why I thought they might start changing again, right? Because, I mean, you're not born a guard, right? You know, but even if you are, say there's some kind of version of the Swiss Guards or something which people have bought and brought up as kind of church, but then their demon is responding to their environment. It's not responding to who they are. Which is my issue with the whole thing about them sticking at 11, right? Because you can be brought up in this kind mm-hmm. of a way and yet your life will turn out very differently. Well, the, I mean, with the dog thing, the, the author states that it's primarily an obedience thing. But let's, let's look at the history of fascist regimes. That's not how... So this would imply that when an authoritarian regime has a bunch of crack soldiers or loyal guards, 
that they're all acting this way for this evil organization because it's in their nature to do so. Whereas that's not how people end up signing up for guard duty in evil regimes. All sorts of people end up doing it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes just because they need the money. Yeah, Yeah. I, I mean, I think the one possible route, right, and it's not like we're going to grill Philip Pullman on this, but the one route he has, actually, now that I think about it, to get around this problem is to say that you, as an adult, you always have a relationship with your childhood. I mean, that could be another way that, another that, that he can make that that argument. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure there's much evidence for that in the book, but, you know, that could be something that follows you around. I suppose a different way of doing it, and I don't think this would work in the book, but it, it would be an interesting way, is that you see someone's demon not necessarily the same way that they see their demon. Mm-hmm. So you could see that it's a dog because you think of them as obedient. But yeah. Actually, they see theirs as a owl because they think that they're wise. Um, and that, that doesn't work in the book, but I think it could have been a, a interesting idea you could play at. Yeah, I, th- I think the interesting thing, though, is that requires them to move away from it being a useful storytelling device. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and... It could be useful in a different way, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could see perhaps Mrs. Cowler's demon would originally be something beautiful and then it would turn to something really evil and then it would turn to something kind of in the middle. Well, that kind of does work because when you first see the golden demon, it's from the point of view of a child. And, and I don't know, a, a golden-haired monkey would be this amazing thing for a kid. But then as you go on, you realise this is actually a cruel creature with nasty teeth which pulls bats apart for fun. Mm-hmm. I always thought, have you ever read Les Mis? And the, the, I can't remember their names, the, um, the couple that take in... Fernandez. Yeah, Dick and Cosette. And whenever they, it, it's very different in the musical, but in the book, whenever they turn up, you know something evil is going to happen, right? Because they're really nasty characters. And I very much felt like this with the golden monkeys, that whenever he, he mentions the golden monkey, something bad, something is, bad is going to happen. I know? mean, actually, there's quite a parallel there, because basically every character in Les Mis is a metaphor for whichever part of French society Victor Hugo wants to talk about at that moment. Mm-hmm. And that's also kind of true in the Dark Materials. A lot of the characters are representative of something. Well, I mean, let's 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 talk about that method. Let's talk about how Mrs. Coulter is the most interesting character in the entire trilogy. Yeah. Wind them up and watch them go. Well, <laughs> she gets to be deep and to change and to go off on long monologues about the nature of choice and why she might have done bad things, about how difficult it is to do a good thing, and how even doing the good things, like well, rescuing Lyra involves drugging her. Is this a death or a good or bad action? She's stacked with moral ambiguity in a trilogy which wants to tell us that morals are ambiguous. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I think the other thing is that she... Um, I mean, I, I agree with you that she's the most interesting um, person in the trilogy. She's also the person that has something that she cares about that isn't her immediate kind of plot reason. Right? Yeah. You know, her kind of change from church agent to mother, right, or her rediscovery of her identity as a mother is something that kind of, well, it just gives her a point of development that a lot of the other characters have. It reminded me very much of, so the Thousand and One Nights as a collection, there's no canon set in them, but one of the interesting things about them is the diversity of female characters throughout, because the, the collection is almost trying to say that Rather than women being a feminine stereotype in literature, women can be anything. 
And Mrs. Coulter reminded me very much of that because initially a lot of her negative traits are what we usually see as feminine manipulation. And yet by the end, we see that actually she's capable of being all these different things. But in the same breath, I have a slight issue with Mrs. Coulter's character's progression because Lord Ezreal doesn't have the same progression. Which is a shame because in his own right, he's a very interesting character. But we have this thing where because she's a woman, she's a mother, she's almost expected to have this kind of relationship with mm-hmm. her daughter. Lord Asriel, while he clearly does seem to have something of a relationship with Lyra, at the end of the first book... He, he it doesn't get developed. It doesn't get developed. So then we have back to this sort of sexist stereotype that actually she is a church agent, but because she's got a daughter, she couldn't possibly defile the bonds of motherhood. And it, it works. I find she's a really interesting character, but it comes up quite regularly that actually she's either a mother or she's something else. She's got, she's got, both. She's got the same problem as Frank Herbert's Dune, which I said about the book, is that just because the most interesting character in the, in the series is a woman doesn't mean that books are explicitly pro-gender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the other thing that she has, though, in, in if you're going to turn that upside down and make it work for her as a character, right, is that she's as the woman also the one that is more sensually involved with the world than Azrael, right? I mean, Azrael's just a principle, right? Azrael's the revolutionary middle singer. He's developed. You know, the... He's, he's industrial model. Yeah, and, and <laughs> so in some ways, while it is tied to the motherhood thing, um... I'm, I don't know. I mean, it, there was part of me that got the sense that it was embracing that as yeah. a role which, in some cases, could be subverted, right? So, I mean, you know, there's some points at which Miss Coulter is effectively saying, yes, I'm the one that would eat the apple, right? Watch me do it, right? And actually engaging in, in the world in a, in a more kind of passionate, emotional sense. Do they ever explain... Because she's implied to have quasi-magic powers over children throughout. Yeah. Yeah, Do they ever quite explain that? I just, I just took it eventually to assume that she's just so beautiful and lovely that they... Yeah, but it seems yeah. to be more than that. It, right? does seem, it does seem to be more than she's that. She's very bringing back to Narnia. She's very Snow Queen. She's very Snow Queen. Yeah, she's not going to give you hot chocolate and Turkish delight and you'll yeah. fall under my spell. Yeah. She did, she did remind me of, of the Snow Queen. I mean, in, in some ways, though, like, the Oxford that Lyra grows up in is also quite underdeveloped, right? It's a bit steampunk or whatever. Mm, I took it as steampunk. Well, this, this is the, um, the Tom Scott joke. Uh, the way you know you're in alternate reality is airships. There are always right. airships in alternate yeah, reality. So, <laughs> I mean, in some ways, because the way it's kind of done in the first book just comes into the fact that she got class, right? You know, she's the graceful, you know, whatever. Um, and so... In some ways, it's funny because she starts off as that and becomes more human as she goes on. Azriel starts off as the kind of scruffy explorer, adventurer character who I'm pretty sure at some point during the first book I thought might be the main character, the actual yeah, main character. Yeah, I thought he was going to be. And the then main actually character. becomes a lot less than that. Right? He just becomes the principal. He's barely in the last two books. Right? There is that, they, and then they die together. Yeah. There is that wondrous scene in. The Amber Spyglass, where they've captured Coulter, and she's at the meeting of the generals, and she does this talk about how deeply she regrets what she did and how much she cares for Lyra, and it's not only one of her emotional zeniths of the book, but Lord Roke and King Ogonway immediately look at her and go, well, she's dangerous. Mm-hmm. That's a scorpion. And that's just her double-sided thing in one. There is her emotional 
motherly feminine nature and her dangerous skill as a political operator. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think in that sense, actually, between her and Azriel, right? And actually, I mean, Pullman's writing style also develops throughout the trilogy, right? So a lot of the stuff you've got in the, in, in the Northern Lights or um, the Golden Compass or whatever you want to call it is is only sketched out, right? But I mean, I think Charlotte is still right to point out that why does it have to be the feminine character? Yeah. yeah. Um, I just say that's a lot of many books. It's just, there's like, I found it a little bit with the newest Star Wars film. That's the um, designated female. It's a designated yeah. female character, and she's so she's all of the things, all of the time. And actually, you never just get a a woman who's normal, really, or anything. yeah. I, I, I mean, found I found her an incredibly boring character. Um, I mean, you just kind of assume at the end of the film, at some point, she's probably going to be a Jedi. See, I don't know, know which Star Wars film you're talking about because yeah. that's kind of the same about Rey and Jedi. So. Right. So um. it's kind of. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's 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 a bit strange. In, in I guess sense. the standard for that is if you the people have, a lot of people have said this about Fury Road is that there are so many female characters in Fury Road that none of them have to stand for femininity, and <laughs> yeah. so you can literally yeah. have a character called Cheeto the Fragile. You can have two other characters who are pregnant, and yet there's such a diversity of female characters by the end that you don't feel that any of them were put on the pedestals like this is what women are like. Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing to talk about with gender in Dark Materials is the witches. I guess I guess this leads us neatly on to talking about Lyra because we've done Miss Coulter and the Witches. Um, I know some people who don't like Lyra because she's just I mean manipulative little shit. She's a scamp. <laughs> so, so this is like oh she's such a scamp stealing people's houseboats and trying to sink them and like rounding up a hundred children to beat up the kids who make bricks. <laughs> <laughs> Like, that's not scampery. I mean, definitely to start off with, to me, she was the proper essence of the class structure because she says something about how Will is obviously there to help her and she looks yeah. down on the children, the, the brickmakers and Roger, even her best friend. She looks down on him because they, they, are, they are commoners where she's obviously nobility. And this is still there in the second book a bit, but this is completely gone by the third book, really, mm. um, which I thought was an interesting development of her character. And I wonder, because apparently he's now writing a sequel or something that will take place after, and I wonder whether this will come back now that she's back in Oxford and she's, you know, going to boarding school and all the rest of it. Um, also, it's interesting that she, there doesn't appear to be a, a state education system in this Oxford because Roger is working in the kitchens and they're like, so it's an interesting well, I mean, issue with children. This, this is the steampunk thing, is that it's 19th century Oxford, which hasn't really moved on all that much. And certainly, like, if we look at the, the way people fight and get things done, the technology of the First World War is almost there, but it's just never come about. And certainly, the image then is that, well, there'll be seminary schools and there'll be private schools, but commoner children do commoner jobs and always will. And certainly, yeah, that, that, that almost Victorian... Class structure is embedded in Lyra's Oxford. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, in some ways, she's not much of a character. I think I say this on every podcast. Like, you, know, the, you the, just the, don't like central characters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. No, but I mean, because one of the things that I was surprised with, and again, like, mostly read the third one, but it is the one that opens up and the one where they look at, you know, more than a couple of different worlds. I mean, she basically just follows the alethiometer. I mean, you know, if there's a comment on free will in the book, it's the fact that she's effectively, for most of the time, when it comes to individual things, like how she's going to break in and steal someone's knife or whatever, you know, she'll do 
what she needs to do, but the actual plot of the book is her basically looking at the the, the alethiometer and following it around. I've heard an amazing fan theory about that, which is that the the alethiometer doesn't actually do anything. Mm -hmm. The people who can read it actually just have prophecy and foresight. And that, because Terry Pratchett talks about this a lot, um, the witches in his books have all sorts of magical objects, but they, they're not actually doing anything. They're just a thing you concentrate on while doing the yeah, actual magic. Right. Um, and so the, the theory is that the alethiometer doesn't actually do anything. And that's why, even if you had all the books of what all the signs mean, not everyone can read it. And why some people can apparently read it without the signs, without the books. Well, the only way for all those things to be true is if the compass isn't actually telling you anything. No, and you're working it out. I think that's a reasonable thing. Yeah. Uh, I, but I think, you know, there's an important distinction here between... Because she loses the ability to do yes. Yeah, so, so, you know... The, but she can she has, gain it back, apparently. Yeah, she can gain it back through work, work yeah. right? So, like, her... so not her style. But her instinct at some, you know, at some point kind of fails her. Just like I imagine Will's with, with the knife or... I assumed that was partly because she's reached puberty at this point, mm. right? And we go back yeah. to the sort of the Susan thing in Narnia, where she's she's become conscious of her own ability almost. She's become conscious of herself as a woman. She's fallen in love. So now her innocence has left her. So now if she wishes to regain her innocence, she has to study for it. I, I think one of the th- I think some of the things that get mixed up though, maybe a little bit in the book or that are quite hard to follow is when it's talking about the society they're living in from the point of view of this is a society with a church in it that subjugates everyone or whatever, and when they're talking about it in terms of this is what she can actually do, right? And sometimes those things seem to get kind of a little bit confused. I think the bear has her down. It's like, I'll call you Lyra Silvertongue. And she's like, yeah, that's great. So I'm not sure that's a compliment, Lyra. Yeah. <laughs> Even though they consider the deceit to be both wrong and useless. <laughs> I mean, what about... I mean, talks about the Luthiometer. I mean, what about the knife? So... I think the subtle, I liked the subtle knife the best of the three, but while the first one and the third one are about mankind's rebellion against things we apparently shouldn't know, the second one is about the overreach of mankind and how genuinely this is something we shouldn't know, hmm. and that this is wrong. And it's interesting that it places itself in the middle, whereas well, presumably as readers all meant to be on board with this rebellion against authority, and yet the second book's about an object which really should never have been. And, I mean, the obvious metaphor, it's a, it's a magical object that splits atoms in half and has led to the, the ruin of um, the world it comes from, where everyone is killed by invisible things. I wonder if this is a metaphor for the atomic bomb. <laughs> um, I mean, so it's kind of performing that double shift in that it's the, it's the MacGuffin they used to get from fantastical world to fantastical world and, and to visit the underworld. And then it's also separately, and the, it's separately the atomic bomb. And these two roles almost don't overlap at all. You have conversations about, well, look, the world that built it, everyone's being killed by these invisible things, which kill you with a weird sickness, and uh, we, it splits atoms. But also use this because it's now plot. It's interesting, in the second book, it's broken, and then the bear remakes it. And when it is remade, it's clear that it's never been broken before, because Will says something about how the lines, of, it's now clearly broken, you can see where it's been rejoined, yeah. whereas beforehand it had been perfect. And then, of course, at the end of the third book, it gets broken again and is not remade. Although he does pick up the pieces, interestingly. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether this is a, a sort of relation to Lyra's use of the compass, because we Will, Will is a child who is using this, um, and the innocence in which he is using it 
Whereas whenever else it's talked about other people using it, it's always men, so almost like an adult. Um, so it breaks when he thinks about his mother, mother. and then it, think, it breaks about Lyra. Um, so almost like he can no longer use it anymore now because he's no longer innocent. And I, I don't know whether that was meant to be. That's kind of. Was implied that the elderly knife bearer who's also missing the fingers can still use it. But it's quite strange because it has two blades, right? Well, one for cutting and one for reality jumping. Yeah. Mm. So I mean, you know, it's funny because they say, "Oh, we're scared of the knife that can cut between worlds," right? Like, you know, Yorick would lose in a fight against this guy that can cut through steel. And all that kind of stuff, but of course he's not scared of the uh, at that point anyway. Yeah. He's not scared of the the fact that it will cut holes between universes, right? He's he's worried about it as a as a super weapon. I mean, it's quite funny that you know the whole prophecy thing. You know, they say he's the boy that will kill death, right? The boy that will end death, right? And of course that makes him sound like he's going to have a scrap with the Grim Reaper, but he's not, right? He uses the other side of the knife, you know, not the weaponized yeah. kind of side of him. So, I mean, it is, it is kind of a strange MacGuffin, like you say, quite a strange MacGuffin. I, I, I actually, parts of it are interesting, but I really didn't like the sidetrack to the Underworld. I felt the book could have, could have gone along quite happily without them doing a several chapter sidetrack and the harpies and the... I think it's a little bit with Philip Pullman in general, in that he's a sort of author who used ten words when five will do. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, except for the demons. Yeah. There's definitely part of that, but I think at that point, especially once you've got to the, the third book, He's basically saying, right, let's take on Paradise Lost. But right? you... You know, you go to the underworld, and it's not Christian hell, right? It's the Greek yeah. underworld. It's the Greek underworld, right? Right. Yeah. You know, and so he's going quite elaborately, you're, you're right, like, through the motions of, you know, and all this stuff with the, like, setting up the harpies so they'll shepherd people through as long as they tell stories and that kind of thing. I mean... Is it necessary? Well, I mean, I don't know. You really like people meeting their deaths, though. I thought it was a clever idea, yeah. because I mean, we talked about how the demons were a core cool mechanism in terms of narrative, but the funny thing is the demons exist for us, right? They exist in that shape, so we can say, oh, you know, this guy's a real snake, or, you know, he's an owl, or whatever. You know, the death thing is for the characters, right? Because actually... The deaths sit around not doing very much, right? And apparently quite cool about that. Oh, they're yeah. quite, you know... It's like somebody you have a chat with, yeah. Yeah, and so, okay, you know, there is this kind of meaning for us as a reader, right? People are able to develop a relationship with death, right? Fair enough. But actually that part of it also seemed just as much for the characters as it was, you know, without any of this, like, slightly silly, oh, the demons fix when you're older and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I just thought it was quite clever... It does not so, get back to the free will issue, though, because the character says something about how when death is close, your death will come closer to you. Um, and all of their deaths, apart from the old ladies, are standing outside and they have to be called in. Hmm. Um, and then Lyra says something like, oh, Roger's death was always, always near him and would have been right next to him when he died. So if death already knows when your death is going to happen, then that surely negates the free will aspect of killing someone. Unless the death gets close to you because you've closed down the probability space, as the quantum people would say. Your death is getting more and more yeah. certain yeah. the closer your death gets. In which case they'd have to then move away from you if you one would get out of that situation. But no one would ever notice that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that also happens in Terry Crouchy books, yeah. right, where death turns death up. Death well, stands near you while you go through. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a bit of a strange mechanism, but I did 
quite like it because it wasn't as personable as this whole like you can have a relationship with your soul kind of kind of argument. I mean, the reason I brought up Lyra looking down and following the Alethiomis around the world was because of that free will thing, though, right? Yeah. I mean, if it is literally just the dust directing people, you know, it does seem because. I remember this book in some ways being a lot more epic in terms of world building when I was yeah. younger than it is now because there's a lot of really big coincidences. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and <laughs> well, yeah, I, I find it a little bit off. You can get into any any world, right? And it says at one point there's millions of them, but they all go into about four, any, and they keep on bumping into each any other. Any time a being which reacts to dust makes a quantum decision. A separate world is created. Yeah. Um, which means there must be billions. Yeah. But, they, but they're all in, what, three main ones? Yeah. Four main ones? Citic Aze, Lyra's world, and Will's world. Is the, on the... And the Malefa. The Malefa world Oh, yeah, the Malefa world, there's four. Yeah, there's four. And then five if you count the world of the, the dead um, as a separate one. I, I, I was wondering whether... I mean, it, at some points in the book, it gave the impression that Will didn't really know what he was cutting into. Yeah. But in other, at other points, all the, the worlds were kind of suggesting themselves to him. But at other points, it was effectively suggesting that he was attuned to, you know, he knew the phone number effectively of, of one world or another. You know, he could feel it. He knew what it felt like. Um, so, I mean... I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just the fact that it's a fantasy story that kind of gets around that problem of like, why doesn't he cut into the one where Lyra's got brown hair? Kind of, <laughs> you know, kind of multiverse problem, right? Yeah, presumably there are multiple Lyras, aren't there? This is what I, I was expecting to come across, one of the characters to come across their own, because presumably if, as you say, every time someone makes a decision, another universe is created, there'd be billions of Lyras, right? Because there would be a universe for every single time someone made a decision in her world. That's, it is yeah. kind of so I, I I was expecting Will to I expected I was expecting Will to come across a world in which his father lived on Earth mm-hmm. in our world um, and that's how they were going to meet. That's yeah, I mean, they don't do the happen. paradox thing. I mean, in yeah. some ways, it's a good thing because that is yeah. always just a really boring part of science fiction. Yeah. Like, oh, you can see yourself. What happens now? Yeah. You know, but I mean, I just think you're right. It's kind of half. Yeah, so it's having the right books in my head. Particularly when he says that he feels Earth. Really easily, right? Like yeah. When he's feeling like holes, yeah, it doesn't things. match up. Yeah. yeah, and you think, well, actually, if it was exactly the same world, but somebody decided to pick baked beans instead of shreddies for breakfast, you know, we we know this is the case because there's so we get country, there are seven countries named after people, and um, so like Muscovy and Russia and China are named after people, and so if both these worlds have a China, then there must have been a Chin. Emperor in both of them, so we know that. Yeah. <laughs> um, does anyone have anything else about? Uh, no, I mean we can. I, I, I have a comedic gripe to end on. Okay. You might edit this one. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, I first read Golden Compass. I was like, oh wow, Golden Compass is really cool. And then I read Subtle Knives. Oh man, Subtle Knives so cool. Or picked up the Amber Spyglass. What is the Amber Spyglass? What does it do? And it's just, <laughs> one, it's not even a spyglass. And then two, it's actually a relatively minor object that a side character has. And I was like, ah, I, I wanted it to be something cool. Well, I got to the end of this book because the Amber Spyglass doesn't really turn up towards the end of the book. And I remember when I was reading it, and it uses the word spyglass. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, hang on, we're meant to do think about Amber Spyglass. And actually I'd forgotten so that we were meant to be having Amber Spyglass at some it's point. A bam- it's a bamboo tube with yeah. two bits of lacquer on the end. But it's something people made. 
That's true, yeah. Right, and that's kind of the point, right? Is something people made using reason and to make sense stuff. of dust on the world. Yeah, yeah. Because so, I assume that's why you picked it, because it means something like the world of the dead or the Well of course what, what is the first book and its original publication is called The Northern Lights. Yeah. Isn't named after something. Which is the which is the version that I read. Yeah. Um, and people complain about what the book is called are literally judging the book by its cover. <laughs> and what's the quote at the beginning though, isn't it? I mean it's a quote from Paradise Lost, isn't it? His dark yeah. the, the phrase his dark materials is yeah. I think it might be at the beginning of the thing. I think it must be. Well, I mean, each chapter in the Amos Spyglass has a quote to start. Quite, yeah. Um, I mean, I think. Are we just about done? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you you. next month. Uh, And we're playing. We're planning to do uh, 1984. We're Uh, playing. Assuming the book hasn't vanished down the memory hole. Yeah, we're playing (laughs) off on the card. (laughs) See you next month. Bye. Bye.